Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I have a special treat for you today, and it involves moths and moth pollination. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Robertson, who has spent a lot of hours observing moths, and what he has uncovered and the topics that he discusses are going to blow your mind and really make you appreciate this unsung group of really important insects, especially when it comes to pollination, and in many instances, pollination of things we as humans enjoy. I don't want to steal any of his thunder because he is a great proponent for all of this work. But before we get to that, I just want to say this show cannot happen without support. And there are many great ways to do that. But one of the best is to pick up some of our customizable merch. They're all really cool vintage prints. And as I mentioned, they're customizable. So you can find the style that works for you. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com and click on apparel at the top of the screen or head over to the show notes at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast where I post all of the relevant links for supporting the show and then some in the show notes. But this is entirely enough out of me. I don't want to keep you from this conversation any longer. So let's go explore moths as pollinators with Dr. Steven Robertson. I hope you enjoy. Right, Stephen Robertson, welcome to the podcast. I am stoked to talk with you, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Uh, my name is Dr. Stephen Robertson. Uh, I graduated with my doctorate in 2021 from the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, shortly afterwards, I went and worked for a nonprofit, which pulled me away from any research that I thought was important at the time and put me on so many different tasks. And <laughs> Uh, after a short stint there and following some disagreements, uh, was left without a job. I've been sitting around at home for the past six months trying to find some, some new endeavor. And, uh, during the course of everything, um, I'm currently in South Dakota, Eastern South Dakota. And in the course of everything, I met, um, my future wife Nice. Her and I are planning to be married in October. So excellent. Well, congratulations, and please enjoy the time while you have downtime. Not a lot of people get the luxury to do that, so enjoy it. You know, it starts out really nice, and it doesn't it doesn't last long before <laughs> boredom takes over, and you're just yeah. itching for something to do. Right on. Well, I hope it comes soon for you, but uh, in the meantime, the reason we connected is because you have at least spent some time of your, your research career studying moths, and specifically moths as pollinators. So... Where did that begin? Because I kind of feel like they're the unsung heroes of really the insect world, but especially Lepidoptera. Well, you know, it's a uh, it's a really interesting story. My my research career, you never really know where it's going to take you. And and when I started at the University of Arkansas, my interest was exploring my own mentality, and so kind of trying to find from from conception to the report, finding a research project that I was going to be interested in. I had this idea that I was going to carry over my master's research studying a, a rare and endemic butterfly in Arkansas. Hmm. Um, and when I got to the university uh, in, in Fayetteville, yeah, it just didn't feel like it was going to, to pan out the way that I wanted to. So I shifted focus and started looking at first diurnal pollinators, uh, at the time, you know, that was that big onset of uh, major work towards studying pollinators. We started seeing colony collapse which disorder make it more prominently into the news. Um, and so I was like, hey, you know, let, let's do some of that research. I developed a, a, a native seed mix. My interest was supporting native bees. Um, 
the native pollinators. And in doing so, I thought, hey, what better food plants than the native stuff? So yeah. uh, I started focusing on generating a native seed mix. And being an entomologist, you just think, well, plants are, are just dummies, right? You throw them in the soil, give them some water, <laughs> they spring right up. Well, I'll tell you. No, <laughs> I probably got uh, out of out of a, a mix of 27 species. I think I ended up getting like five to come up in any kind oh, of wow. uh, any kind of effort. So I put a lot of thought and effort into it. Anyway, that that effort failed uh, pretty horribly. But uh, while doing it, I noticed that pa, uh, moths were visiting flowers in the mm. evening. Um, when, when your research is is so uh, all encompassing, you find yourself in the day out on research plots and at night yeah. out on research plots as well. And in those times, yeah, I noticed some, some moss visiting flowers. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and later on, a, a friend of mine had visited a natural area just up the road and he found a wild peach tree randomly. Some guy, I guess, mm. tossed a peach pit and it grew into a tree in this area, which is pretty cool. But yeah. uh, he noticed hundreds of moss visiting it. And wow. I was like, that's, that's really cool. Went out and observed it for myself, and no kidding, I've never seen that sort of visitation from a diurnal pollinator or any other type of floral visitor. So I was just super impressed and immediately decided this is where I need to focus my studies. Um, and that's how I ended up getting into moths. I had some expertise in studying butterflies. Sure. Um, which are just day moths. Uh, that's maybe another topic, but uh, nonetheless, yeah, it, it immediately formulated it like in front of my eyes. It was kind of that lucky moment where I was like, oh, wow, I could study something unique and understudied and super cool. So nice. It's cool that it kind of was, you know, born out of that observation thing, because that's something I harp on all the time on this podcast is get out and observe. Like you never know what's going to trigger that. Oh, yeah, that's where I want to go moment. There's, you know, there, there are things that are said to you throughout your life that I think carry weight for the rest of your life. You often revisit. My master's advisor once told me that, one, in order to do the science, you have to be out there. Yeah. And two, there's excellent science to be had in your backyard if you're open to making those observations. And so being out in the field, being available and having an open mentality, that'll lead you to some really excellent research topics. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, you're living proof, right? But yeah. I love that you said day moths because again, you know, we're all subject to biases where most of us are up during the daylight hours. So of course, if you're thinking of lepido Lepidoptera, butterflies, they got good PR, moths less so. People get them in their house. It probably bothers some of them. But, you know, <laughs> this is a group that, as you mentioned, is poorly understudied. And I, you know, would you assume you're in it way more than I am in the literature. Is it just that day-night cycle? People don't want to stay up late, or is it they're slightly less charismatic? I mean, what what kind of lends to some of this understudied element for moths? You know, there I think there are several contributing factors, and the primary one, you know, is like you said, we're usually asleep during those periods. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's when we're either inside. We're certainly not thinking, hey, let's go on a walk and go see the flowers at night because that's <laughs> what I I know they're going to be beautiful, but um, so, yeah, I think there's this uh, disconnect between, you know, common human human uh, dial cycles uh, and when these things are out and actually doing the work. Uh, in addition to that, you know, we're talking about animals that are super pestilent. They mm. they can take out entire fields of crops. Um, and, and that generates this sort of clash between what I was trying to show at the time, which is that they actually have a, a beneficial contribution to crops uh, where the priority and, and prominence in literature suggested like, well, actually, they're 
eating everything we have. So <laughs> choose a side and let's and and you know try to make the case in the dissertation that these are two separate things. And when considering a single species, sure, it's important to consider both. But when my focus was on this aspect of it rather than uh, the the pest status of these animals. Right. And I would assume, you know, the ones that reach pest status enough to be demonized are few and far between compared to the vast majority of moths that exist on this planet. Yes. So it is, uh, yeah, the, the, the numbers are strikingly in favor of moths that are relatively benign towards crops. Nice. Okay, so you made this incredible observation. The sheer mass of it is bewildering. That means a lot coming from an entomologist. You know, you, you're looking for this stuff. You're paying attention to it. So to notice a difference, there might be something there. Where did you go from there? I mean, how do you go, okay, time to study moths? Well, so um, the, again, the, the first plant that I saw it on was peaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next step was to confirm that this wasn't an isolated observation. You know, when you have a single tree, that's anecdote. When you have <laughs> multiple trees across multiple different fruit, well, then you've got something that's worthwhile. So I spent some time over the, you know, I, I looked at blackberries, peaches, um, they pop up pretty, pretty early. And so it's easy to rebound from that and check out uh, blueberries. I looked at blackberries and this was just for observation mm. and sort of this preliminary understanding of what was going on. Um, and I was not disappointed. They visited blackberries in numbers, not quite the same numbers as uh, the peach tree I saw, but blackberries, blueberries were probably the um, most abundant of moths I've ever seen. Dang. It was incredible. And so I just decided, you know what, this is where I need to focus some study. And luckily I was at the University of Arkansas. They have an excellent fruit research program. Uh, I started my research looking at um, the stone fruits in uh, a small town in... Uh, Arkansas uh, on a a fruit research farm and I was looking at peaches uh, and from there it expanded I wanted to look at apples Uh, I looked a little bit into blueberries uh, and I've been extremely interested in cherries but cherries is uh, beyond our growth Mm. uh, growth zone in Arkansas I'm curious why why would cherries stand out a little bit more than some of the others just out of curiosity yeah, it was the, the ornamental cherry trees. One, you know, it's always the grass looks green on the other side, right? So that's a, a tree, a fruit that we didn't have enough of that I could study with uh, with any kind of intensity. And so I'm looking at it, and, and I, we have ornamentals there, and, and the, the moths that we're visiting there were, again, in incredible numbers. And I was thinking, gosh, if I could just get on a cherry farm, I could study this. And so it's kind of, yeah, it's yeah. just that, that missed bird, that one you didn't get. <laughs> We all have those in biology on some level, but I also really appreciate the crop focus of this, or at least something that is tangible to a lot more people, because it's it's one thing to be like, oh, out on the grasslands, these moths are pollinating X, Y, and Z. If people don't know those plants or care about them, it's hard to make a case. But when you're talking about economics, especially for massive uh, production crops, and you know, when I think of apples, cherries, you know, where you can grow them and, and peaches, I'm thinking of people importing beehives or mason bee things, which is all interesting in and of itself. But here's an opportunity to sing the praises of a totally underappreciated group of insects that are doing hypothetically, economically, massively beneficial things for people that might not even know they're out there. Yeah, so the um, University of Arkansas is a land-grant institution in the state, and so they get a lot of money to study agriculture. And entomology is broadly an agricultural study. Um, 
And so we were we were housed in the College of Agriculture. It seemed important to try to focus on agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like you said, you know, if, if we're going to really highlight the importance of something, you know, I could go and say, yeah, these moths are visiting dandelions and everybody's going to be like, well, that's even worse. Like, <laughs> what are we talking about here? Uh, and some of the, the plants that we we know are, are pollinated by moths are considered, gosh, weedy species. So it was really nice to be able to focus on fruit that, you know, you go to the store, you buy these things, you recognize them, you've tasted them. What if that thing was pollinated by a moth? Mm. That's a cool story. Yeah. Yeah. And again, uh, singing the praises of something that's kind of a service, at least uh, on an ecosystem level, underappreciated in that group. But if there's one theme I've gotten out of talking to pollination or people that spend any time trying to study pollination biology is it's not easy, right? It's not as simple as this insect ends up here, ergo pollination. So how do you start approaching this, especially on a tree, which, you know, they're not super tall, but they're also not short and easily accessible. Well, the, uh, the, the first year of study, I'm coming into this, you know, absolutely having no background as far as uh, there, there's no contributing literature. There's so little oh, out wow. there. There may have been anecdote and, and some examples in us completely different fruit, um, cucurbits, for example. Hmm. Uh, but it's very limited on what was available. And so in, in some ways, I pulled from other studies that had been done and just incorporated some simple ways of excluding these flowers during periods that, you know, I didn't want a pollinator to visit. Right. And so I can actually compare what was going on. Uh, and you're right. I, I had a ladder the first year. Uh, I wasn't sure if maybe these things were stratified. Perhaps they're visiting the crown of the tree hmm. more than they're visiting the middle or the lower part. And so I designed a, a full block study in order to study to assess whether or not this was going on. Turns out it wasn't. So I could get rid of the ladder, thank God, because I was up and down the ladder every sunset and every sunrise uh, for the course of three weeks, which is not too bad, but it's 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 exhausting. And when you're out there alone, dangerous as well. Yeah, but a little tedious at times, I'm sure. Yeah, you take um. So what we did is we took uh, fruit exclusion bags. Um, it's it's mm. one of those things that. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's probably very economical for individuals because it's hand. You have to put them on by hand. But uh, it's just small micron uh, mesh that you can put very lightweight in so it's not going to damage or touch or hurt the flowers or anything. And you just cover the flowers during periods of time and make sure you have your control groups. And uh, when you come back, you can check fruit set and then you can follow that through fruit development, count seed counts and and figure out what's actually going on how much are they contributing if at all so it sounds like you picked up a lot of like botanical skills along the way during this process there is i don't know that there is a field where you are so isolated that you don't branch out it's almost (laughs) you know it's necessary i think it's good to have that open mindset but it's also really important to expand your skill set and knowledge set Big time. Yeah. I mean, who knows when those skill sets come back into play or at least another way of adapting them. And that's what I think of is so interesting about research is all the things you just kind of power through, maybe try to get good at, but it, it's an ends to a means. But then later in life, you're like, I'm so glad I learned how to do that. I am an expert about putting bags on flowers. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> so. But of course, you know, the other side of this is I'm sure from the entomological perspective is who's coming to visit these flowers. And, you know, depending on where you're at, it could be a lot of things or maybe a couple of things. And so was there a lot of like basic biology of just grabbing, identifying, trying to assess the the suite of potential visitors in that case? 
so, you know, we have we have a really well-established list of visitors in diurnal. So a lot of the my diurnal, they were just observations, going out and confirming the presence, m- making sure that, you know, what we know to be there usually was actually there. Yeah. And so, you know, you see your, your honeybees, you see a lot of the bombus or your, your bumblebee species. And you come across some andrenids. Uh, in Arkansas, we don't really have um, some megakillids, which would be like orchid, uh, orchid bees. Mm. Um, but that said... Um, it was mostly kind of a checklist observation for diurnal stuff. And then when it came to night, we, gosh, we had no idea. Yeah. Uh, so it was a combination of, I was out there from uh, sunset to sunrise for four years doing nothing but observing these things, blacklighting. Uh, blacklight is relatively efficient in, in catching these things. And it'll give you a good estimate, a good broad look at what's actually visiting or at least present in those uh in those apple orchards during bloom uh, and then i confirmed that by going out and make like the ones that i caught in the traps was that something that i mm-hmm. saw visiting the flowers and so it's this you know multiple line of evidence in order to figure out which ones are actually contributing uh, and which ones are just hanging around and, yeah. and you know, we found a, a fair number of them that are probably just there because that's what they feed on as larvae ah okay so there are host elements to this too Sure. Wow. Uh, I, I think one of the most um, most common moth I caught out there was a tortricid moth, uh, an apple moth. And nice. gosh, they fed on dead leaves. So it wasn't anything <laughs> that they were actually being destructive, but they were just out there in huge numbers. And goodness, I would catch so many of them. And I can tell you, pinning them uh, in order to get an accurate representation, <laughs> the smaller they are, the harder they are. But gosh, there's a lot of beauty in yeah. some of those micros. Yeah, yeah. I forget where I finally kind of fell into that little world of photography, at least, and seeing what people have turned up of the amount of moths that are, like you said, micro in scale. It's bewildering. And so many of them are like just around, you know, how many people are paying attention to that, let alone all the other things. They are, they are tiny and you probably, like most people probably don't even notice them. They'll have to land and you've got to get pretty close even to recognize it as a moth. It probably just looks like a gnat or right. a fly. Uh, but the bulk of Lepidoptera diversity are animals that are smaller wingspan than 10 to 12 millimeters. So Dang, that is very, very small. Actually an impressive statistic that takes me aback for a second, but yeah. <laughs> So, you know, as any botany survey I do, it's it's hitting the keys, right? You're trying to figure out if maybe you know it to family or something to that effect. Um, and and most of the time we have stuff that like you can kind of see with the naked eye or hand lens. Now, when you're talking about trying to identify insects, I realize it's a completely different world. Like you're talking orders a lot of the time rather than families or genera. And so what's that process like? You know, it's not like you went out familiar with all the moths, right? So I, I would imagine a lot of time in the lab under a microscope with keys. And, and what kind of features help you in that in that identification process? You know, um, I, I think this is one of the reasons that butterflies are, are so coveted as far as naturalists go. You know, identification comes down to markings. Uh, and so a lot of times you, you, if you catch the animal and you spread it appropriately, mm-hmm. getting it down to family, a lot of times there's wing structure. So how many veins are in the hind wing, uh, in this particular section can help you identify things, um, structure and shape of wings and overall body size, uh, can help you get there as well. Um, 
But, you know, a lot of it comes down to the, the markings. And so the differences, and, and we're talking very small differences, but differences <laughs> enough that you're able to tell them, you know, you can pick it out. Um, sure. And keys are helpful with that. And I can say field guides were super helpful. Oh, nice. Also. Yeah. And, and that's like, when you mentioned blacklighting, a lot of that is you, you take some sort of sheet or something out there with a blacklight on it and just, like you said, see who shows up and, and hope it's in one of these <laughs> guides and keys. Yeah, so uh, a traditional way of doing it is uh, setting up a sheet um, for for this type of survey. I didn't want to have that type of sheet out, potentially, you know, restricting their movement in the mm. field because that that could be important. And I was doing, you know, that simultaneous exclusion study. Ah. If I put a sheet up there and these things, you know, bumped into it. Granted, I'm still removing the animals by the, the survey techniques that I use, uh, but it was it was a bucket. And so I put a black light over top of a, a bucket with a funnel. And as these animals come in, they hit the metal, metal funnel, they fall down into the bucket where I've set up um, kind of an aerosol um, vapor, vaporized sure. killing agents. Uh, and it knocked them down, and then I would collect them every hour. Part of, of the study was trying to figure out when they visited as well. Wow. So. Uh, again, you know, you're talking about asking questions about a system that's so completely empty that yeah. I could ask whatever questions I wanted. I felt like it was important to try to get some some characterizations in order to enhance the studies in the future, which I really hope people pick up. That's cool. Yeah. And it's it's a wild place to be that I don't think a lot of listeners and, and really scientists in general, a lot of us come in and go, all right, what am I doing with the established literature of often decades of research put onto it? And so to be able to go out there and do this true, like exploratory sort of study and set that foundation is that's a remarkable place to be in, especially as a PhD student. Yeah. And uh, make me feel like Captain Nemo. That's for sure. You know, I have to say uh, that that's one of the things that really drew me to science was the idea of asking questions that had never been asked before and, yeah. and, and being able to provide answers to complex questions that, you know, people hadn't even considered or perhaps I'm just expanding a field in a way. Um, I got really lucky to land on this. Um yeah. There's no doubt about it that a, a lot of luck played into the success that I had in, in this particular research. Right on. Yeah. I mean, the other part of it, too, that's really exciting is thinking about those questions and with a little familiarity of ecology and how different things work. Like the fact that you were asking, is it stratified? Could there be differences in feeding based on the position of the canopy? Or are these things having, you know, such limited range that putting out a sheet could potentially hamper pollination? I mean, these are all fascinating things that like as you're saying them, I'm like, oh, I never thought of like niche segregation in the way a moth feeds on an apple tree, for instance. So, well, in, in, in some ways I was able to pull from literature on, on diurnal pollinators. One of the things about apples is that um, largely they are um, self-infertile. So you can't take pollen uh, from one pot flower on the same tree, generate an apple on that tree. Uh, and so the, the way you structure orchards, oftentimes you have a pollinizer tree, which is something that puts out a pollen of slightly different variety, but is viable to create the apple mm. that you want. Uh, oftentimes they're crab apples. Huh. And so every every fourth or fifth tree will often see like a crab apple. They're not looking for fruit. They're using that pollen in order to generate huh. the fruit, the trees that are valuable. And so we know that that pollen has to be transferred over to an actual infertile tree. Um, and so in the way that this plot was designed was we had two guard rows on either side of uh, the orchard. 
which were the pollinizer trees, as well as to accept uh, some of the pest damage and kind of prevent like a buff uh, yeah. to a certain extent. So that means that the moth had to visit one of those and then visit the flowers that I was studying in order to produce fruit. Um, and that's important. So one, you don't want to restrict their movements. So I knew that I didn't want to restrict their movement within there. Uh, but it also just having results suggests that they're not just, it's not this happen chance. They're not just flying through mm. and oh, I'll just visit this one and, and keep going. No, nope, they're visiting multiple flowers on their visits and they're crossing lanes. They're crossing over in rows, which wow. is a very important aspect of pollination. Yeah, that's really cool. I had insights into the the fruit generating industry on top of that, but it, it may seem obvious to someone that studies it, but like what are moths looking for in a flower? I think we take for granted bees, pollen and nectar sometimes, but like pollen seems to be a big reward for a lot of hymenoptera. I'm going to guess moths not necessarily all the time or in most cases, no. What, what are they looking for when they're visiting these flowers? And that, isn't that always the thing? It's like sometimes yes and sometimes no. <laughs> oh, and, biology. Yeah, I, I think I think for scientists, my the, the the answer that I give more often than anything else is it depends. Okay, that works. And it comes it comes with uh, it comes with some explanation too. So it's not just it depends and I'm going to leave you naked. Yeah. No, um, it depends and it depends on the uh, the moth itself. You know, mm. they they have a straw for a mouth. Yeah. A coilable straw, and so they are looking for liquid meals. But as it turns out, we found that some of these moths aren't just feeding on nectar. Yes, they use their, their straw mouthparts, the straw mandibular mouthparts, to suck up um, liquid meals. But pollen that collects on the outside of their proboscis, they are actually excreting compounds that can break down this pollen. And then they use that protein absorption from the pollen itself in order to provide themselves with just a little bit more nutrients. And so... Man. There is a slight, it's not nearly as much as Hymenoptera, but I make the case that Hymenoptera remove that pollen. Mm. They use that pollen in order to feed their young, uh, the, the bees do. Sure. Um, so that's actually a food source. They, they're not necessarily thinking about, okay, well, you know, if some of this pollen escapes, they're trying to hoard it. They're trying to get as much as they can. And so it's a complete removal. Where moths, where the focus is more nectar, uh, it's kind of happenstance, you know, let's let's the in the plants mentality or the plants perspective, let's get pollen on this thing so it can go somewhere else with it. Mm. Uh, and the moss happen to be just an excellent conduit because they're not interested per se in collecting a huge gross amount of pollen. But they seem to be more efficient with a smaller huh. number of pollen granules. They're able to achieve the same level of pollination as bees, which are carrying around these huge packets of thousands of pollen granules and hoarding. And that's wow. a really interesting idea. What is it about moths that, how are they so efficient? How are they doing it in a way that, you know, they may transfer just a few pollen grains, but here you get an apple that's the same size. Here you get an apple that has the same number of seeds. That's very interesting. That is fascinating to hear. And yeah, you think about, again, the biases that we have in the way we study these sorts of interactions, especially when economics are involved. You kind of want to get to the answers, but to ignore this entire suite... This brings up the question of like, okay, you saw equivalent sort of uh, seed set and, and really the outcome is, is desirable, more efficient with it. And by the sounds of it, these moths are out in high numbers. And so it starts to really ask the question of like, who is the primary pollinator in some of these instances? And, and I would, you know, in, in some cases I could see a world where 
it's moths, man. Like with that in mind, it could be way more than a lot of what we uh, look at during the day. We know we know for certain that there are some species, um, some cucurbits, like I had mentioned before, in, in uh, Asia that are predominantly pollinated by moths. Um, there are, um, are you familiar with pollination syndromes? Uh, these are like color, shape, size, uh, orientation and structure of the flower itself. Um, it basically can give you an idea of who visits, who pollinates. Right. Um, so in, in the case of, of a, um, a moth syndrome, you would expect, you know, they're not necessarily seeing in color. It turns out that they see excellent color vision, huh. very good. Um, but that these things are, you know, you'd expect a very fragrant flower uh, mm. because it's nighttime, so not a whole lot of light, uh, a white flower, and, and particularly open because, yeah. you know, a larger animal has to kind of get in there and, and stick their, their mouth parts in there. And so these are the assumptions of what we would think with a Lepidoptera pollinated or particularly moth uh, pollinated flower syndrome. Um and I'm not so sure that's the case. I would guarantee that there are more plants out there um, that are predominantly pollinated by moths. Uh, like I said, cherries. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure cherries are an excellent target. Uh, I think peaches are probably, for some reason, the stone fruit really stood hmm. apart as being important. Um, the numbers of moths I saw on blueberries beg the question of who's, who's actually contributing the most to blueberry pollination. And it very well could be moths. Fascinating to think about. Yeah, I love this idea of sort of syndromes. And when you think about what you just described, like one of the first things that pops into my head was like, oh, that's, that is kind of like a rosaceae flower, right? And this this larger family is a ton of stamens. Like, why is there a ton of stamens? Well, moths are fuzzy little buggers that can probably pick up a lot of pollen in the pro. Like, not saying it's always a one-to-one match, right? But like, if the majority of the work is being done. It doesn't really matter all the time who the secondary tertiary pollinators are, right? In that kind of context. Well, um, <laughs> it actually does. So oh, um, yeah. how, nice. how they conflict with each other could be very important. Oh. Uh, and so a, a complementary pollinator situation would, would potentially, you know, kind of parses out which flowers are being visited. Mm. And so maybe on the, the extreme outer edges of the branch, maybe flies prefer that. Mm. If you get more towards the middle or towards the higher parts of the plant, and this is all just giving examples but maybe bees like that. And so once you start to parse out like, okay, these guys are visiting these flowers, these guys are visiting these flowers, they're complementing each other on uh, producing, like having the end result of pollination. Mm. If you have animals that are visiting the same flower, you could potentially have something going on where you're not going to get the same results. There could be some conflict. Um, and that sort of, relationship this this temporal relationship between visitation is incredibly important and and considering that when how you interpret your data analysis and your results is, mm. is also important but you know there there is possibility that if a bee visits a flower it might be the less um uh less efficient one and so it's going to rob that plant of the pollen and then a moth would come in it just wants the nectar the flower itself 
does to an extent understand like I'm depleted of pollen is probably on its way out starts to deteriorate. Mm. Um, but the moth is going to visit, take the nectar drink and not care if it gets any pollen or not, just keep on going. And so you end up getting no pollination because bee visited first. Wow. Whereas if the reverse had happened, the moth would probably have taken less pollen, maybe pollinated something else, taken the nectar drink for sure. The bee comes in, takes the pollen. You still get pollination because the, the timeline of visitation. So these these are the types of, of incredible interactions that are, are really, you know, that's really what you're teasing apart when you really get into it is yeah. some of that depth. Yeah. That is wild. <laughs> I mean, this is why interdisciplinary conversations need to happen. I, I had no concept of that. And that is so cool to think about the, the myriad ways even just order of operations can play out, let alone who are the players in this system. And and you're working in one system, right? How does this play out over all the other potential systems? And you can see there's so many more unknowns. And to take anything on face value and take it for granted, especially like ah, the hubris of we know it, we're good. It's 2023. Come on now. It's not the case, man. The biological world is complex and weird. I am a huge, a huge advocate, especially when it comes to research, is come to your own conclusions. You know, the, the prominence and, and predominant interpretations are out there, and they're likely correct. Mm -hmm. And if you agree with that, then excellent. But make sure you read the data and, and interpret for yourself. You might come to a conclusion that could lead you to asking a question that nobody had thought of before and is more important than anybody could have ever imagined. Uh, I got lucky in this case, of course, like I said, to study something that was you know, fairly in my face, fairly obvious. <laughs> um, and it was also really nice, too, I think. And there's something to be said about being able to conduct simple science. Um, it's, it's great to have access to the tool case that, that has, you know, this multivariate analysis that really teases apart every contributing factor. And then you can identify very important things and, and pull that out and potentially even explore that further. Um, but there's so many unanswered questions and so many big questions to be asked that, you know, it kind of lends itself. I put bags on trees. <laughs> I ran very simple analyses. And what I came out with was something that, that you know, showed there's this group of organisms that are contributing to the things that we love to eat that nobody had thought of before, and they're actually doing it exceptionally well. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I, yes, <laughs> 100%. And then some. And yeah, I, you know, I, I did a lot of trait work. I looked at the attributes of different organisms, and the question always came up like, well, is this functional or not? I'm like, well, it's a trait. Like, it would do we have enough data to know if we can even make that distinction at this point in time? And it makes you wonder all these little nuances are like, is the pollen sticky? Why is it this color? It, these are the kinds of questions that when I talk to people like you, I go, we must consider everything. <laughs> it is. And it, you know, that it really kind of, it almost pollutes thought. It can be so draining uh, <laughs> when you're thinking of every possible angle, you know, cause you don't want to come out with something where, I dump this this huge profound finding like on the scientific world and they're like, yeah, but you didn't think about this. And I'm like, right. oh, gosh, it's, it's entirely ruined. Yeah. And so you do. You, you spend hours and hours and hours of thinking of every possible angle, every possible flaw and weakness in order to strengthen the case that you're trying to make. And when you come out with results, you know, it's like, holy crap, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so, you know, all of this goes back to like 
you want people to learn about this. You want it to go beyond the scientific community, especially when there's economics and, and food security and stuff like that involved. So, you know, did you come away with a greater appreciation that we need to be singing the praises of these moths and telling people that this is wildly important? Because even if we don't fully grasp the breadth of it, and we certainly don't by what you've said, your work alone has shown it's a vital service that we would do better to pay attention to. Any good project comes out with more answers than or more questions than when you went in. Sure. Uh, and I came out with, yes, a unique perspective and some really interesting ideas and hopefulness for uh, uh, directions of study. Um, but gosh, you know, it's 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 impossible. I, in a lifetime, there's no way that one person <laughs> could possibly cover that. And yeah. so I, I hope with my hope with my research is that people are able to see it, recognize maybe some areas that are important for study. And say, like you said, let's let's not ignore any and all contribution. Right. Because where you find where it might be a, a small contribution here, it could be an incredibly high contribution in other areas. And so uh, let's. It's important not to dismiss and it's important to, you know, continue on with the research. And, and in this case, you know, I think there's something even more profound in uh, what I observe and in some of the data that I was able to collect and come out with it. These um, a, a phenomenon that, that most people are familiar with are the, the migration of Lepidoptera. You know, mm -hmm. we know about the monarch. The monarch flies from, gosh, Canada all the way down to Mexico every year right. is that super generation from October all the way until uh, the, the uh, spring of the following year. What the heck is going on there? Yeah. Well, it turns out that moths, the populations that come up here, uh, sometimes they go back. In, in many cases, they just die in, in the areas where it's too cold to, to live. Uh, but those populations are preserved in areas where the temperatures maintain. And so we're talking about like central uh, and eastern Mexico is oftentimes where some of the moths that I was capturing uh, spend their, their winter period, wow. sometimes South Florida. And so during spring, there's this massive migration. And I'm not talking like small numbers. We're talking billions of insects moving from these warmer areas into areas where, you know, where you might have found tall grass prairies. Now you find corn or soybeans, sure. and that's why you have pest problems. Um, so these animals are flying northward. It is exhausting. It is taxing as far as nutrients. Where are they fueling up? Well, it turns out they're fueling up on flowers. Hmm. Uh, and so these things may be carrying pollen, and it is actually one of the ways that we found out where they came from was to isolate pollen off of a moth that had been picked up from Texas, and we found it in Illinois. Wow. That's 1,800 kilometers that it carried a piece of pollen from a plant that doesn't exist anywhere in the area. So what's the likelihood that these animals are, even if it visits one orchard and does, it contributes, it creates, say, two apples. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. Yeah. Now if it visits four, five, six orchards along the way, now we're talking about, oh, my gosh, this is a whole lot of contribution. And then you got to think about the genetic ramifications of that. If it's carrying genetic information from, say, it's a wild plant from a southern population northward, well, then you're going to get mixing unidirectionally. You're not going to see it go the other way. And I, I think it's interesting to note that the most prominent period for angiosperms to put out their reproductive flower is springtime. I don't think that's I don't think that's coincidence. I think that's by design. What are they tapping into? Why is that time of year so important? What if it is right. just this migration of insects? 
Wow. Yeah, that's a lot to take in. And it just, again, more questions, right? Like I go to so many talks on genetic structuring of rare plants in particular, but like when they say like, oh, these populations are separated by multiple thousands of miles and yet there's mixture between, well, here's a potential point of data that could go maybe look at that because yeah the odds are so stacked against these organisms yet it's happening and you're observing it happening in a highly altered ecosystem a highly fragmented landscape and in an agricultural system to begin with which we often think of as devoid of a lot of biodiversity but it's still working and it it also lends this idea that like we can do it right there's ways to do it right and we could probably do it better the more we know, the more we can do. And yeah, we, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I think we have this idea that we need to have this like tight control on things. And I think if you really observe, these are natural occurrences. These are natural phenomena that have been happening for millions and millions of years. Humans are this blip of a period in that. Mm. And we, I mean, gosh, in, in my experience, the, the more we dip into it, the more that we kind of disrupt things. <laughs> and so if, the, if we actually, if we know as much as we think we do, like let's just tap into what's going on naturally. And I, I think we'll have much better success. It'll be, I'm not stressed out because I'm like carrying a bee, like, please go this flower, <laughs> please, <laughs> please. Uh, no, you just step back. You set up the environment. You, you set up the, the conditions to favor those natural occurrences and then just let it go wild. And yeah. and it's, it, gosh, I, I feel like that's much less stressful and more profitable. Oh my gosh. If I didn't have to think about profit, right? Like just yeah. let it happen. That's amazing. So <laughs> with all of this in mind and all the time you spend out hours and hours and hours in the evening and the mornings and, and thinking about moths, are there any species that really stand out to you in the course of this work or just since you've really started paying attention to them that really kind of like highlight why this big group of organisms is so phenomenal? Um, I will talk about three. Cool. Um, Spingids, uh, the sphinx moths, those are the ones that people usually think about when they think about pollinating moths. Mm. Um, if they think about it at all. Uh, <laughs> they may have heard the story of Darwin's orchid pollinated by... Um, the moth, the, yeah. that exceptionally long proboscis in order to reach into the corolla and, and collect a nectar reward. And it's the only thing that can pollinate that star orchid. Um, here I did find some, uh, some sphinx moths, white line sphinx moths visiting flowers, but it, it didn't seem to be as prevalent as the noctuids. Hmm. So largely, uh, largely as a group, noctuids, they, they've often been like this catch-all group. You know, you get those groups among uh, orders that are like, we don't know where this fits. It's, well, let's just toss it into noctuid. We'll, we'll call it noctuid. And then now that we have, you know, modern phylogenetics, we can start to tease that apart. The changing that's going on in, in the phylogeny and the, the structure of uh, the tree of Lepidoptera is changing constantly, and it's hard to keep up with. But that said, um, noctuity seem to be very important when it comes to pollination. Mm. And two in particular, uh, if, if there are any growers, if you have anybody that, that farms that are listening to this, or anybody maybe even that does some back gardening, back home gardening, uh, backyard gardening, um, the black cutworm mm. and the true army worm. These are two names that are synonymous with plant destruction. Their caterpillars are outrageously destructive, but they were the most common visitors and I think probably the most <laughs> important contributors to moth pollination and apples. Wow. 
what a conundrum there. <laughs> Isn't it? And so, you know, you find yourself at this like this weird divide between you want to support moths and you want to support moth pollination. But what you might be supporting are the same things that are eating just swaths of people's land and, and like, you know, their livelihood. So yeah. it's like, oh, geez, uh, what am I supporting here? And it, it does create this sort of conflict. But at the same time, and it's like I, I said during my research, it's you, you have to separate those out. When yeah. you consider the value of an organism, yes, you have to think about both. But uh, when you're doing the research, you're thinking about it. Let's not discard the benefit that they're providing because later on in life they could become a problem. Right. I, th I say you deal with the situations as they present themselves and while they're pollinating, they're not destroying plants. Right. And like you said too, think about why they hit the mass explosion numbers that they do. Maybe it's something about the design of the system rather than the reaction to it. I consider that too. I wondered like how much of, of am I witnessing like, uh, the numbers that I'm seeing, how much of it is because, like, we grow corn. Yeah. And that's all it is. We grow corn, and that's why there's so many numbers, and that's why I'm seeing that contribution. Uh, but I don't think that's the case. Uh, in any way, that is, that is uh, definitely one of those angles that you think about, and you're like, sure. oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> how do I interpret this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, those are the three nice. that, that are that always stuck out uh, as being, you know, interesting, very interesting, especially towards study. Uh, you know, and I think as this research expands, you probably find that it changes. It changes among fruit. Like I said, with blueberry, uh, I was getting geometrids. I was getting noctuids. I was getting, you know, just m multiple families. I saw six families visiting uh, blueberry flowers. That's... Dang. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you think of like the diurnal ones, it's like not that many <laughs> oftentimes. Yeah. So in, in any given area, you might have, I don't know, uh, four, four families of bees represented. Sure. Um, flies, of course, are going to be different. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's something else to be said. You know, all this focus on bees as being pollinators. In my experience, there are things that are probably fly pollinated. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. From the plant perspective, uh, gnats and flies are, and beetles, I would even argue, are another group or groups that definitely need more sort of uh, attention and celebration, really, because, boy, without them. Whew. Nice. Well, hey, this is incredible, Dr. Robinson. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it. If people want to learn more about the previous work you've done and keep tabs of whatever is in store for you in the future, where do you recommend they go looking? Um, contact me on email. You okay. know, I think that's probably the best way to do it. I tend, you know, gosh, with, with the way that we get spam calls, right? Uh -huh. I know I only answer my phone if I don't recognize the numbers. So, Same. Yeah. Uh, won't do that. Um, and as things go forward, you know, I, I tend to be somebody that kind of just goes with the flow. Um, and, and I don't like to close doors. Nice. Um, so I, I just kind of walk down the hallway and the, the, the room with the brightest light. And you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a moth in that way. I'm going to be drawn in like, oh my gosh. <laughs> This one's buzzing. I'm going to go in here. So I have no idea where the road takes me, but we'll Not see. Not a bad thing. Yeah, no, it sounds, uh, sounds fun. But Dr. Robertson, again, thank you so much for taking time today to talk with us and to shine a light on a really underappreciated and understudied group of arthropods in general. But uh, yeah, you've really blown my mind and I'm sure many listeners will appreciate and say the same. So thank you for your time. I hope so. Matt, thank you so much for having me.
All right. Phenomenal stuff, right? Incredible insights into the amazing world of moth pollination and really the myriad interactions that moths can have with plants and other pollinators, especially as it relates to day and night shift. It just goes to show you how complex our world is and why we need to be paying attention to things that haven't had as good of a PR run as some of the more charismatic pollinators. I thank Dr. Robertson for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, I will put all of the relevant links in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. And while you're there, look at all of the different ways you can help support the show because it couldn't happen without support. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can pick up some of our customizable merch. You can also purchase a copy of my book and stickers. And if you really want to go the extra mile, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants where you can get kickbacks for supporting the show. Thank you to everyone that's done it thus far. I literally couldn't be doing this without you. But that is entirely enough out of me. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.